Fatality Fitness Podcast, covering everything from fitness, health, and nutrition with your host, Matthew Smiley, covering top topics and answering all your fitness Q&As with featured guests. Hello and welcome to the Fatality Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Smiley, and on this episode, we've got a special guest, David Jacko Jackson. I don't even know what to call you here, because obviously you want to go Jacko. How are you? Tell us a bit about you. Uh, yeah, no. Um, so David Jackson, or nicknamed Jacko, um, I was a professional rugby player for 13 years in uh, Nottingham in the UK and uh, retired from a head injury in 2013. We had a seizure on the training pitch. We can talk a bit about that in a bit more detail if you want. Um, and yeah, it took me a year to be able to get over that sort of head injury Um and uh, once I could, I was wanting to get back into training, uh, but also had to have a new career and didn't really know where I wanted to go with that. Um, I've got a background in, I did a, a master's of uh, engineering. Um, I've a qualified teacher, but I didn't want to go down that sort of route. I'd learned, I'd felt like I'd learned so much during my my rugby career that I wanted to like stay involved in sport and try and help the next sort of generation but I wasn't strictly I guess I wanted a bit of time away from rugby as well um, I'd done some rugby coaching but um, my my sort of passion for for training was um, you know led me down the strength and conditioning route so um, so I met the, my current my business partner Tim Stevenson at the Scorecast Cynics um, we he was a strength and conditioning coach working in Paralympic sport and uh, he'd gone into it through not the traditional like university route. So there's a course um, that I did that was the following in the footsteps of what he'd done sort of like five years previously. It was actually run at Trent University, but it was like an internship. Um, so very practical. Um, got accredited with the UK Strength and Conditioning Association and, and started working with Paralympic athletes that he was working with, with another business that doesn't exist anymore called, that was originally called One Athlete. Um and yeah, had a bit of a, a fast route into strength, like taking what I'd learned from, um, you know, from training myself as a professional rugby player in that sort of gym environment to then trying to trying to apply strength and conditioning principles to the sort of Paralympic um, environment where you have to be able to very much think outside of the box because, um, you know, you can't, you can't do the traditional movements that you might want to do because the athlete in front of you might be have you know both legs amputated or one arm and you can't just tell them to do you know your bog standard sort of olympic lifting for a sprinter but you you've got to you got to be able to adapt things um and that sort of led us that when that helped us when we started exploring just for our, just for a bit of fun for ourselves um this world of calisthenics i wanted as I said when I've retired and it took me a year to get over my head injury but once I was able to get back to training I thought I'd just love hitting the gym and lifting the weights but I got very bored of lifting weights when there was no reason to do so um, in terms of some reason to do so but I, I used I realized I thought I was the most like uh, motivated guy like going when in training wise like that was my thing like you weren't gonna you weren't gonna beat me for work ethic and I was motivated and, and military about what I did and what I, th I thought that that was just something that was one of my, that was one of my abilities. Just that's why I, I had part of my personality. I'd, I'd built it up. Yeah. Um, but when the rugby was taken away from me, I noticed that when I didn't have a game to perform for at the weekend, my motivation for training just sort of dropped off a cliff. And I remember being in the gym, looking at other people going, well, you're not, training as far as i know for like you know you're here you, you, you're here in just this normal gym you're not you're not a professional athlete and yet you're training like as hard as i used to like mm. i was in awe of them i was like where's where's this sort of coming from um and i think i just need to find a new passion i remember doing i was doing bicep curls and looked in the mirror and i was like jacko what are you doing yeah. you could do anything yeah. you're doing bicep curls like when you, I'd, I'd always liked things like martial arts as a kid and, and things like that but never had done any of it because once you've gone down like a professional sporting route, you it's in your contract. You weren't allowed to do any sports. You weren't allowed to do anything else. And it was very, you were very narrow with what you wanted to get good at, which at the time was what I wanted to do. Um, but now I had this freedom and I wasn't using it. I was doing the same exercises I would have done because that's all I knew when I was playing rugby. So me and Tim started, um, started messing about um, with some, with some handstands and things originally just in our gym, just literally playing about just for fun. I was looking for just something different to do to bring back that sort of motivation and like uh, love of love of training and um, 
caught the bug very quickly. My first frog stand, I face planted onto the floor, which wasn't a very good idea for someone with a that has recovered from a head injury, but um, all worked out okay in the end. And one thing I wanted to do is I'd seen a human flag like years and years ago, like a photo. And you look at a photo of a human flag, like body out horizontal, holding onto a bar or a pole. You're like, how is that even possible? Is that photoshopped? Is that even real? And, you know, um, it was one of those things that we, this is where the relationship of like what we'd learned in Paralympic sport comes into play. Like we was like, right, I want to try and learn how to see a human flag. And it's like, how do you even get started? You're like, you do what everyone else, if you do what you do when you try and learn how to do something right these days, you Google it uh, and, or you put in YouTube, YouTube, how to human flag. And, um, a video came up and it looked like a guy just gave his phone camera to, to his girlfriend or something and said, I'm going to show everyone how to do a human flag, a human flag tutorial. And just went, this is how you do a human flag and just put his arms on the bar and just did one. And we were like, okay, I believe you can do one now, but I don't know how, how do I break this down? You haven't told me anything, how to actually do it. So we just went, right, as coaches, if we were like coaching someone, like how do we, how do we break this down? We basically need to reverse engineer it, break it down to its smaller components, work on those, build it back up and put it together. And, you know, it took us, um, probably three to six months to get actually any good at a, a human flag. But it was one of those things that you remember when it was impossible and our strap line at scorecast is redefining impossible. And, um, we, uh, when you do something you used to think was impossible, then, uh, then yeah, it really, uh, it, it changes the way you look at move and look at training. Yeah. Um, so what age did you actually start playing uh, rugby for? How, how long did you play? Like uh, before you, cri- uh, so I started when I was, uh, when I was six years old, I've got a trophy for best effort award still at home from 1988 when I was six and best effort normally meant that you weren't actually any good. You just tried hard, which is probably the, uh, probably the, uh, my, my my career over I was very much I would I would try but anyway yeah so I started when I was six and that was at Nottingham where I played and I worked all the way through the youth teams all the way through the academy and everything and then played over 300 games um, in the first team as a professional um, and, so, and then that ended in I'd, I think I was entering my 13th season as a as an as a like a, as a as a first team pro and um, then had a had a, a head injury I'd had a series of 10 or more head, like serious head injuries where I'd been kept in a hospital from concussions and stuff. Um, and the final one was uh, caused a seizure on the, on the training field. We weren't, it was taking less and less to knock me out. And it yeah. was, um, it was taking longer and longer for me to be able to recover from them. And we were just playing touch. We weren't even, it wasn't a game. We were just warming up, playing touch. And it was me and someone else on my team just banged into each other, trying to catch the same ball that someone had passed. And one of the lads said, you know, at first it was about to start laughing because it was just funny, just two of you banging into each other. Um, this guy that I banged into, Phil, his, he was a lot taller than me, so his shoulder hit my jaw. I can't remember anything that happened that day. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I out. he said he was about to laugh, and then all of a sudden I'm on the floor and I'm starting to have a fit, a seizure. Uh, and the lads put me in the recovery position and got the physio and sort of got taken to hospital and... And how was long drawn out process yeah, to actually yeah. and the thing is, is like then, if you've yeah. been playing a sport for so long and have that took away for you, how is that transition and like tra- as you say, it's like trying to find another why, another reason to train because mm. no longer are you needing that for your athletic performance. How was that transition for you? Was it difficult or was it just a matter of finding something that you do find interesting and get your kind of teeth in about that would basically want to get you to go to the gym and do things? And as the thing is, it's like you can tell with your body shape, like you're not tra- you don't need to train for uh, aesthetics, and that's maybe where you've found the joy in the doing the calisthenic stuff. Yeah, I think it's a great question because when I was playing rugby, training wasn't for aesthetics; training was for the, for a performance at the weekend. So you're doing things to be fitter, faster, stronger because you wanted to perform, um, and you were getting judged on your performance. Um, you know, and you're uh, you're you're effectively playing for contracts as well. If you wanted to stay being a professional, you had to perform. Um, and so, yeah, it wasn't about aesthetics then, but to be honest, I did. Th- I remember thinking, and I remember saying to one, uh, one of my mates, like when I was getting towards the end of my career, I was like, you know, when rugby finishes, like I was in good shit, Joe, and I wasn't, I wasn't like one of the big fours. I was a winger or fullback. And so I was, you know, low body fat and, you know, I was in good shape. Um, but, it was, and it was your job, you're paid to do so. So it was a good, it was a good thing. Yeah. Um, but I remember saying to to one of us, I was like, when I do finish, you know, I'm going to hit the weights even harder. When there's no rugby to play for, I'm going to hit the weights hard and I'm going to be like even bigger 
and even more ripped. And like, that's what I thought I was going to do because that's what I thought I loved. And as you say, uh, I, it, I didn't actually, interestingly, didn't actually, when it came down to it, didn't have that desire. I got, I, I, it wasn't enough to try and do that, to try, I was, I was bored very quickly and I needed to find something that got, like, like lit that fire in the belly again and got me excited about training um, and really having a reason and a purpose. Um, and what we found, what I definitely found with calisthenics was that, having something to work towards. I mentioned like a handstand and a human flag. It's like a, a tangible outcome that you're achieving. That's not based on changing the way that you look and your aesthetics. Yeah. Like you all, if you train hard and you eat well and you do the right things and look after your body, you will look, you and you will improve how you look in your aesthetics. But if that's, we certainly feel that if that's your primary focus, it isn't leading you down a very, great path in terms of your mental health as well because you're just validating everything around your appearance rather than what you can do with your body and actually what's on the inside as well and that what you think and your beliefs and um that when it came down to it for me was just far far more important and was able to motivate me in terms of the the transition was difficult for other reasons as well you like when you if you if you anyone that's ever suffered like a head injury or concussions um, the symptoms are, can be quite individual, but there's some common things like your, your classic ones of headaches and feeling sick and tiredness and, and things are, are fairly normal across the board, but you've also got like cognitive demand, emotional trauma, depression. Um, you've got all those things to deal with. Um, and I certainly felt those, um, you know, you, you couldn't do the simplest cognitive tasks. Like I ended up, um, I was in co-op looking to buy, I wanted to buy some yogurt <laughs> and the sheer choice. So the cognitive round of which yogurt do I answer, the sheer choice of flavors of different types of yogurts was too much. And I used to shy away from say, telling this story and saying it because I didn't feel comfortable. It's been a long time now and I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big boy now. I'm great <laughs> but I, I cried in co-op because I couldn't deal with that decision. It was yeah. just too much. And it just, you know, I didn't used to like talking about that because I didn't fully understand it. Whereas I'm very aware now that it was because of the injury, my brain was recovering and it, it couldn't deal with that input and it couldn't deal with making that decision. It wasn't a reflection of me being, you know, a, a terrible decision maker and just like <laughs> yeah. really wet and whatever. It was because of the position I was in. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm happy to say that I don't cry in the supermarket anymore. Um, but, you know, it's useful for people to hear that, that, that I've spoken to a lot of guys in the rugby world that have had head injuries and concussions about that. And I, I'm very honest with them so that at least if they're going through something similar, they know that it's normal and uh, it's normal if you've had a head injury and it and it will pass and it will get better. You know, I also was changing careers and going, I remember having a, a conversation with a physio, um, good friend of mine. I played with him as well before he, before he went on to be a physio. And, and he said, he was like, what are you going to, what are you going to do? It was just before Christmas. Um, we knew that my contract would be ended and it was like, how are you going to pay your mortgage? Christmas isn't going to be very good. What, what are you going to do? You know, I was very lucky. Um, I have very good friends with the, at the time it was the the CEO at the rugby club, Simon Beetham. He, um, they honored my contract to the end of the season. I just signed a new two year deal, but they honored, honored it to the end of the season to just help me get by. Um, and I did some work in the office just to get back on my, my feet and just get used to, you know, at first I couldn't even look at the t- tele, uh, the computer screen. Like it was just, you know, I'd be going to sleep every afternoon. Like yeah. there was a point where we never said it to each other, me and my wife, but once I'd got better, we, we uh, I asked her the question, did you ever think, I was ever, cause it had gone on for months. I was like, do you think I was ever going to be actually like get fully better and able to have a, like have a full-time job? Because I remember literally just lying in bed and just being like, I'm so, I just can't function. And it had been going on months and I had never experienced that before. I'd always, I'd had some bad head injuries, but within a couple of weeks you were back to playing. And I, I was asking myself or worried about the, the question of, will I be able to sit in front of a, computer screen or stay awake for long enough during a day to hold down an actual job. Like that was a concern at one point. I remember saying to wife afterwards, she's very much, uh, she would never say it when it was happening. Cause it was very much like, come on, get on, let's crack on with it. And let's, you know, very positive like that. And, um, keeps me in a good place. And she, um, she was like, yeah, the, at, at the time, yes, you were like a walking zombie. Um, 
but she never showed that to me, which obviously helped. If I knew that she was worried about me whilst I was worrying about me, then it, it would have got obviously worse. But, you know, I'm lucky my story is, um, is, is sort of turned around. And I found recently a new thing that we, we mentioned before off air, the, the breath work um, is something that I started exploring about two years ago. But what I've found out more recently from Dr. Done some work with Dr. Cobb at Z Health Performance. Um, if you don't check them out, fantastic, amazing neurology based training um, stuff that they do. And, and he's, he was showing me some uh, research that shows that for when we've had a, when we've had a concussion or a head injury, we get reduced blood supply to, um, and, and therefore oxygen supply to the brainstem the most common part of the brain that will get affected. And that's why we get a lot of these sort of cognitive issues and demands and, and uh, things going on. And it can massively have an impact on our breathing, um, breathing habits. And we can change to butch this much more like upper chest mouth breathing, um, uh, over breathing stress type response um, and, and shallowness of breath. And it was something I definitely experienced myself and that breath holding is something that helps drive uh, more blood supply to the brain and oxygen to it. So it's actually a protocol for concussion recovery um, that I didn't know at the time and didn't realize. And I've only started doing now um, because I was trying to change. And we'll talk about this in a bit more. We can go into a bit more about, about why I started into the breath work. But um, as exploring that, I've doing some of the work from Oxygen Advantage. Those that have read the book will know like breath holding is a, is a big part of that. And I didn't know at the time that was actually doing a great job in, in, in helping heal what would have happened to my brain. Just before we jump on into the, the breath work, just tell us a wee bit about the the School of the Calisthenics. So what is it? Is it like online programming? And um, do you get a lot of kind of requests from people maybe in the kind of CrossFit community? That yeah, want to kind for of sure. Build, yeah, that want to build from that side of the, the sport that they're in? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things with the School of Calisthenics is that People have seen the and our our personal story. Me and Tim is that you know we were two ex rugby players. I he dislocated his shoulder more times than he can remember. I broke my scapula, my shoulder blade in two places as one of the many injuries that I had, as well as my head injury playing rugby. And you know, starting from a very battered position. Um, and the, uh, like I said, the first frog stand I did, a face plant on the floor. We weren't ex gymnasts and 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 trying to teach people things from having done gymnastics and that type of training for a long time. So, you know, we started that in our like mid thirties, and you know, a lot of the same type of people gravitate towards us. They 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 might be in their thirties or forties, and they've got. Um, you know, they've, they've got a family now. They want to be able to train at home. They want to go to the gym less or they just can't go to the gym now because of COVID or they're just in a similar place to ours where they just got a bit bored of lifting weights and want to look after their body a bit better and see body weight um, style training and calisthenics as a, as a way to be able to do that. Uh, we're very big um, on investing in our physical pension, as we call it. So what are you doing now for your training to try and ensure that you can enjoy your body for, for a long time going into the future rather than just battering it against a, against a barbell or whatever for the sake of um, trying to get a PB yeah. in the gym yeah. for, for what's the point? What's the reason? What yeah. goes down to it? I mean, it might be a thing that you like, motivates you. But yeah, so we, pre-COVID, we, um, we were doing workshops all over the UK and, and wider afield into Europe. Um, we've been to South Africa with it as well. And we're, we're teaching through, um, you know, say we... We're very much, we've been coaches for a long time and, and, and coaching is our thing rather than, we're not the best at calisthenics in the world, but we're, 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 we can teach you to do the things you want to do and that's where we pride ourselves on our coaching. So, um, yeah, it started with 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 workshops and, you know, uh, as, as the world does, it, uh, there's elements of it that was online. More recently, it's had to go exclusively online. So we're doing online workshops as well as there's, yeah, we have a membership to our, our online platform, which we call our virtual classroom playing the classroom plays on the school theme where, yeah, there's week by week programs that you can follow um, all laid out in, in a set into modules that have like a, a, a progressive uh, loading strategy so that the the programs aren't linear. You know, we, we take people through a progressive loading and deloading as they as you would design for like an athlete working through any type of program. So we base all of our our coaching, our programming on what we would do as a strength and conditioning coach. We just apply it into the realm of calisthenics. So we've got stuff, everything from beginners. As I say, we were beginners, so we know what it's like to start yeah, as a beginner. Yeah. And we break things down, and then we take you all the way through to if you want to do handstands and muscle ups and human flags. 
and and obviously those things like the handstands and the muscle-ups um, resonate with the CrossFit community that have those as parts of the things they want to learn. And so, yeah, we get, we've, we'll often get in our online community as well as uh, workshops, people, um, people from the CrossFit community wanting to, yeah, they want to, they want to learn how to either do their muscle-ups a little bit more smoothly or easily so that they can do more reps or they've never done one before and they, they want it broken down and, and taught them. So yeah, it's it's always exciting uh, teaching people to and seeing their faces when they when they do something for the first time. As talked about redefining the impossible, when when you help when you've been in the press and help someone do that, and then you see their face and they're like, "I've done their first hand cell, their first muscle," they they almost like can't believe it. And you know, yeah, you know what that was like, and it's always a, that's always a joy to see. Yeah, I think these are quite relatable. I, I can relate to these in a big way because obviously. Um, I played rugby at a young age. I was an injury that probably stopped me from playing. Mm. So I tore my cruciate at a young age. And then yeah. uh, years of battering myself in the gym and doing weights. And then now I've started doing kind of more kind of calisthenic, more kind of rehab stuff. As I said to you, I, was, yeah. I started working with um, Ben Patrick doing the knees over toes stuff and more kind yes. of the rehab kind of stuff. But I'd be interested in having a look at your stuff as well. Um maybe start to introduce a wee bit more of that into my, my training as well. So let's talk about the, the thing that the topic we want to really talk about is basically breathing and the breath work. So what got you interested in the breath work and basically your journey so far on that? Yeah, so I think about two, I mean, I remember working with a soft tissue therapist and like, you know, shoulder niggle from, from rugby and things and going, you know, they were, they're working on the body and then like very, they were very good, you know, in terms of looking at like the entire kinetic chain. Whereas in my little small head, when I first started, I was like, no, no, my shoulder hurts. I just want you to like release my pec and my lat and like, and then I'll crack on. And they were going further down the chain. And I remember them saying like, they were like, oh, your, your diaphragm is all stuck down. You need to do some work. We need to do some work on your diaphragm, your ribs and, and, and how you're breathing. It's really important. And I was like, I just wasn't, this is like maybe like five or six years ago. I just was not in a headspace for it at all. I was like, not in interested and then about two years ago it just sort of kept cropping back up and I I was asking myself the question of like am I actually breathing correctly um and I don't know what sparked that question but I remember thinking well I've never been taught you start looking at things and people talk about diaphragmatic breathing points using diaphragm belly breathing these types of things and you're like you start trying to do it and then you're like well I don't know if I'm doing it like I, I, I still don't know if I'm doing it right um and then I went to a, a Richie Norton, the Strength Temple on uh, Instagram. We'd had him on the podcast, um, got on with him, great, and uh, went to one of his workshops where it was like a breath and movement. Um, he does like he's like a yoga teacher as well, and got a little glimpse into the breath. But I said to him afterwards, "I was like, mate, what's? Uh, I want to look into the breath a little bit more. Um, have you got any books you'd recommend?" And he said, "The Oxygen Advantage. Read that. It's an absolute game changer. And when someone you trust." says game changer for me i'm like okay mm-hmm. and um i'm fairly dyslexic i've not as a kid did not read any books i've got into reading books more as an adult and um i'm not that good at reading if you know what i mean in terms of fast like it can take me a while to get through a book but i rattled through the auction about i couldn't put it down i just absolutely um loved it and just started putting some of that stuff into place. Um, very much focused on nasal breathing over mouth breathing as an absolute basic. Um, you know, the there's no function really of the mouth compared to the design of the nose to to say that we shouldn't be breathing through the nose. Like the nose is designed for you to breathe from. Um, I say I I would give it. I flip it on its head and say. You know, if I shoved a pee up my, it's a bit gross for people listening, but if I, if I shoved a pee up my nose and I went and snorted, I, I could get that pee up my nose into the back of my throat and I could eat it. So just because you can eat through your nose, you don't choose to, because it's, it's, it's fairly, it's, it's, it's not comfortable. It's pretty, unda- it's pretty dangerous, but it's the same with the mouth. You can breathe through your mouth. <clears throat> Sorry. You can breathe through your mouth, but it doesn't mean that that's what we should be doing. Um, and particularly that the only time when, when we're like maxing out, uh, like an exercise in a sport and we're really pushing it yet. Yeah, yeah. It's a way to get additional air in, but there's everything about the nose, certainly at rest and any low level stuff we're doing. And for our recovery, breathing through the nose, um, harnesses nitric oxide that's in the back of the nasal cavity. We don't have that in the mouth. It's a vasodilator. It helps open up the airways. It will clear your nose. We can do a little note. We can do a couple of little drills actually really yeah, yeah. simply for people. Um, 
it, the nose also protects the, those upper airways as well because it ha- helps humidify and, and the air as well. In the time of COVID, it's the, the nitric oxide is antiviral, so it's ha- giving you some level of protection um, if you're breathing in through the nose rather than the mouth. There's some really important stuff around the fact that it slows us down our breathing, um, which helps us with our uh, the depth of our breath and the pace of our breathing, stops us from over-breathing. One of the big problems with over-breathing, which you get from breathing from the mouth, is that we get rid of too much carbon dioxide. And this is one of the big things that, I've, that was like a real alarm bell moment when I read the Oxygen Advantage was that, the, um, that CO2, carbon dioxide, is not just a waste gas. Yes, it gets produced in the cells. In every cell of your body, it needs glucose and oxygen to produce energy. And it produces carbon dioxide as one of those waste products. But carbon dioxide is not needing to just get out. It plays a vital role in um, allowing oxygen to be effectively released from the blood uh, from the blood into the working cells. What, you know, so just very quickly, that carbon dioxide helps to lower the pH of the blood slightly, which allows... Uh, hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying component of red blood cells, to release its attachment or its affinity to the oxygen to allow the oxygen to go into the cells. Without uh, being able to tolerate levels of CO2 in the blood, hemoglobin just holds on to that oxygen. And so you might be breathing in and, and your blood oxygen saturation can be 98 99% and probably likely will be but you're still out of breath when you're exercising or even worse, you're, you're out of breath when you're just like walking around a bit and you're getting used to this over-breathing pattern, which is a stressful pattern, shallower breath from the mouth, creates a lot of tension through the, the chest, the shoulders, because you're using those muscles to lift the ribcage rather than using the diaphragm. That you know, Breathing from the nose helps stimulate and activate the diaphragm, which is our primary breathing muscle, the one we should be, should be using. Um, but when we get into these patterns that are are linked also to our, our fight or flight stress response, breathing from the mouth, upper chest breathing are linked to that. Then we stay in this mode and it's a bit of a habitual cycle that you then carry on doing and it gets worse and we carry on over breathing. And by that over breathing process, we are not number one, we're also just generally slightly more sympathetic tone in that fight or flight state. And we're getting rid of all this carbon dioxide. So our tolerance to carbon dioxide drops. The, the receptors in your brain that dictate when you need to breathe um, are measuring levels of carbon dioxide in the blood. They're not measuring your levels of oxygen. So when you have that desire to take your next breath, it's because your brain has noticed that your um, your carbon dioxide levels have got to a certain point and it tells you, right, we need to breathe now. And part of that breathing process is you get rid of carbon dioxide and you breathe in air, which has oxygen obviously in it. You, you, um, you get into that over-breathing cycle when, that, when those receptors um, get changed. They adapt to that constant level of over-breathing. And then what you find is that you, you can't hold your breath. You, at the end of an exhale, you don't like have this nice natural pause where the diaphragm gets to relax. You end up always wanting to take that next breath. You start exercising and you, and you, feel, like, you feel like you're always need, not getting enough air in. Yeah. And the reality is you are getting air in. Your blood ox- oxygen saturation will be high, will be 98 99%, but the oxygen is not getting into the cells because hemoglobin is holding on to it because you're, you, you have, you've changed your tolerance to CO2. So a lot of the work with, carb, with um, the oxygen advantage, particularly the breath holding, is using breath holding as, a, as a, stre- a small stressor for the body to adapt to higher levels of CO2 so you can restore that balance of being able to tolerate um, more CO2 in the body. Yeah, can I, I want to pull it back to yeah. you? Like, where Sorry, you were, I just so, No, 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 that's cool. It's brilliant. It's just about, like, obviously when you were saying like you had these kind of injuries and stuff, um, and you felt like obviously people were saying that you're not breathing correctly. That's where I kind of where I kind of dived into it. Mm. Uh, I had actually been following Joel Jameson. It was the heart rate variability, and he yes. had said that he had a, a shoulder injury. He tried acupuncture. He had physios and stuff, and he, he was told to go and see this guy Bill Hartman. And uh, I don't know if you've read his book, but it's worth getting. It's um, all all gain no pain. And basically right. puts him puts the guy on a table and gets the guy to start breathing correctly using his diaphragm. Joel comes up, goes, my shoulders feels okay, walks away. He's like, nah, it's just going to be luck. Never had yeah. shoulder pain again because he was using his diaphragm. And that's yeah. kind of what got me into the breathing. Yeah. What do you think are the main problems when you look at the average person's kind of breathing? What what the things they do wrong? Obviously, we spoke slightly there on kind of more mouth breathing. Yeah, so mouth breathing is linked to that upper chest breathing. 
Um, and upper chest breathing is shallower. We don't actually get a, a depth to the breath. So we're not actually utilizing um, the lungs. When we're breathing, every breath we take, there's um, about 150 mil lost to dead space. So the little bits of space, dead space in the little alveoli sacs within the, the airways in the lungs, where the more you breathe, uh, the, the, like the more breaths you take per minute, the more you're losing to dead space. And therefore you're not even, even though you're breathing more, you're not getting as much air actually in. And so it completes that, that cycle. And the other thing about um, when you're breathing from the mouth and it's more upper chest dominant, we're not using the diaphragm effectively as a, um, as a, as a primary breathing muscle. That's also going to affect our rib articulation. So those lower ribs won't be articulating, being able to move out and in to facilitate the right space for the diaphragm to be able to move. And then you're left with this like habit of always having to lift the rib cage from the upper chest. So the, the, your friend there would be like pecs, pec minor will be working quite hard to try and lift those, those uh, sort of ribs, three, four, five, your, your neck might be quite tight and your traps tight because there's always, they're always working. They're working harder and working in the background all the time. We can breathe up to 20 to 25,000 times a day. And if, Every single one of those is a rep. If it's, if it's dysfunctional, breathing uses muscles. It's a movement pattern. The diaphragm is a muscle. Uh, all, these other muscle all these other muscles around the shoulders that are lifting, helping lift that rib cage, they're working when they, they don't need to be. They only really need to be working when you're, you're doing a max effort of something. And yes, you're breathing from the mouth and you're breathing with everything. I'm using the mouth, the diaphragm, everything to get, to get more in. So I'm, I'm, I'm going max effort mm-hmm. um, on like some sprints or my 5K PB or whatever it may be. Um, so if we are breathing from, from the mouth, we're gonna, you're, and this is one of the things where I started with, it was like, I had a lot of tension around my neck, my chest, my shoulders. Um, and it didn't really matter what I did. It was not going away. So I think one of the things in the back of my mind was like, there's something in the background going on that's holding me back. I think that's where it started for me. That was like the thing was, and, and you know, it was like, well, the breath is, the heartbeat is beating in the background. I can't do too much to control that, that the breath is going on in the background. I think I can do something. That's where that sort of exploring started. So number one for people is like, try to use your nose. Like that's going to help a lot. Mm-hmm. But to start with, your nose is going to be super blocked if you've never used it before. So we could do a little nose unblocking drill now. We'd be, people who don't know, be able to, you could just listening along, you can, you can do this. Yeah. So um, if you're, you, you're happy to do that, Matthew? Go for it. So you breathe in now through your nose, but quite strongly just to feel how blocked or unblocked it feels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get a feel for what it's like. Does it feel completely easy or is it a little bit blocked? Mine feels not too bad, but I probably because I put, but maybe because I have done a few of the drills already. It's today. right. So yeah. people, people, listen, might, you may not. So also check one. So block one nostril and breathe through just one and then breathe through the other. And what you'll probably find is one tends to feel a little bit more blocked than the other. What the brain does is it, it uses the nostrils like independently, generally like throughout the day they swap. So it lets the right one do some work for an hour and a half apparently. And then it swaps over every 90 minutes apparently. So, but you'll notice that they change. Yeah. But if we will do a simple drill where uh, you're going to hold your breath after a normal exhale, you're going to pinch the nose and we'll nod our head 10 times. So I'll, we go, if you listen through, I'll take us through, you go normal breath in for the nose, normal breath out for the nose. At the end of that normal exhale, you pinch your nose and nod your head 10 times. Keep your mouth closed. When you let go, breathe in through the nose. Let go. First breath is in through the nose. You should feel like a, a, a clearing, even as we do just one repetition. I recommend doing like sort of three to five repetitions. That you can go from 10, 15, maybe even 20 head nods. Um, but depending on your CO2 tolerance and level of breathlessness, you know, you, you're not going to be able to do many of those before you start start feeling like, oh, I need to take another breath. That, that that CO2 level rising as we hold our breath will trigger you to want to do it. So we don't want it to be stressful, but you want to notice that when you let go and you breathe in through the nose, you're taking that nitric oxide I mentioned at the start uh, that's in the nasal cavity. It's a, it's a vasodilator, meaning it opens things up, opens up those airways, opens up the blood vessels. So you'll instantly feel like some relief. Now that might last for like 10 minutes. It might last for an hour. But until you start using your nose more regularly, it's going to get blocked again at some point. Yeah. So you, um, the more you use your nose, it's like anything, it's a use it or lose it type of thing. Uh, if you don't 
do uh, bicep curls, your biceps are going to shrink. <laughs> if you don't use your diaphragm, your diaphragm is going to atrophy. Like if you don't use your nose, it's, it's going to end up just getting blocked. It's just the, an adaptation that happens. But the great news is that the more you use it, the easier that's going to get. So there's lots of simple little um, breath holding drills that we do, just walking and using your nose. Try jogging and only using your nose. You think it can be a bit of a snot fest at the start. Yeah, that's yeah, what so. I was going to say. Do you think that's when it's the most difficult, when obviously when you do more kind of high intensity training or when we are sleeping obviously because we are less less un- less aware of kind of what we're doing yeah but, yeah so as well so um as you increase the metabolic demand of an exercise so station trying to just everyone that now is they listen to us this podcast try to breathe in through in and out for your nose and if hopefully you just sat still you're not doing anything that should be okay like it should be but if it's not then we definitely we need to be doing something about it as you increase the metabolic demand so rather than being stationary sat and walking or jogging is then going to be harder to to um to walk in and then i can run faster obviously those things the demand the metabolic demand of that means that you need more oxygen coming in and therefore there's like a greater demand for how you are breathing that will challenge you at the start if you've been used to using your mouth every time you're exercising so it's one of these things where to start with it's hard and you need to make a change and if it is hard that's not a reason to go oh i'm not going to do it it's actually the reason to go you actually really really need if you can't jog and your nose is just completely blocked up and you can't feel like you can go, you can't jog at all and you feel like a bit panicky and you're going to like, you just have to breathe through your mouth, then it's a very good sign that you need to, um, you need to start thinking about clearing that nose and using it more because it was designed for breathing. Your mouth is, I say, it's, it's if in your, unless you're doing something max effort, it's linked to, it's linked to stress response. It's linked to creating upper chest breathing, creating tension. It's just not good for us. And as you say, at nighttime is a great example. We hopefully sleep in maybe eight hours a night. You're not that much in control of how you, how you breathe when you're sleeping. So being con- changing your awareness and bringing some awareness to the conscious hours that you're awake to, to try to breathe through the nose, try and use the diaphragm, let the ribs articulate outwards um, and, and just try to breathe more, uh, lighter and, and slower and, and relaxed with that breathing rather than it being fast and heavy. The nose helps us do that. Um, and if you are start to train yourself to change that habit during the day, when you go to sleep at night, you're much more likely to use your nose and breathe through your nose. Yeah. If you snore at night, that's extremely bad for the quality of sleep that you get. Uh, I used to be a terrible snorer. Um, I would get whacked in the side regularly by Mrs. Jacko. And I'd be like, what are you doing? It's like, because you don't know that you're snoring. And it's like, you're snoring. I'm like, was I? And she's yeah. like, yes, yeah, who else would it be? But um, yeah, and so there is actually some techniques where we, we literally tape the mouth closed. It's not as as, as crazy as it sounds um, to ensure that the nose stays clear. Um, oh, sorry, it's just to ensure that you stay nasal breathing. Um you know, and if you if you breathe if you snore through your mouth, keeping your mouth closed at night is going to stop you snoring. Yeah. If you snore through your nose, then slowing down your breathing and getting better at breathing lighter and slower is going to stop you snoring. Because you try and make a snoring noise now, try and make a snoring noise now, but by but you're only allowed to breathe really lightly and really slowly. Yeah, difficult. It's impossible. Yeah. The, the only way you make a snore noise is. Is, is like breathing aggressively in yeah. and fast. You breathe slow, you can't snore. Um, so your wife or your, your partner will love you more when you stop snoring and uh, it's going to be better for your health. What I found from it is like, I didn't probably realise I had been doing it, but since I have been taking my mouth, when I wake up in the morning, my nose is a lot more uh, free. Like it used to be yeah. really Because you've congested. been using it all yeah, night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I found that like a lot of the time, through the day when I've been like personal training in the gym, my nose had been so congested for so many hours in the morning yeah. and didn't realise that was what the problem was until I started um, trying that. So yeah. let's let's talk about... Uh, oh, just on that, sorry, the, the, there's, if you've got a job where you're like a personal trainer or you're on the phone a lot for work or you do a lot of presenting where basically you're talking a lot, it's very difficult to breathe through your mouth when you're talking. And so we need to be really conscious of it because breathing through your, when you're talking a lot for your job, you're going to be doing a lot of mouth breathing as part of that talking. I'm doing a lot of mouth breathing now as I talk to you. Yeah. Um, I, and that's just going to like, when I stop talking and we finish this podcast, if I'm not aware that I need to try and address that, I'm going to just stay in that mouth breathing cycle. And, and like you say, using 
using um, some tape on your mouth at night to ensure that at least during the night you're breathing through the nose. But equally, when you're awake, bring your awareness. Like, just ask yourself the question, like, just notice now, as you, are, are you breathing through your nose or through your mouth? And, and try to notice it through the day. Yeah. Do you feel more relaxed when you use your diaphragm and breathe through the nose? Because that's going to be a really good thing for you. Just when we talk about that, kind of, I want to talk about the different kind of styles of kind of breathing. We're talking about a more kind of relaxed approach. Now, I know a lot of people who, because obviously we were talking about the kind of cold water therapy, we kind of both yeah. do that. But um, a lot of people are now getting into the kind of breathing techniques that obviously Wim Hof kind of teaches. Yeah. But when we are talking about that, it's like the the holotrophic and the kind of tumor get a fast yeah. um can you talk about a bit, bit, bit about that and how, like, I know a few people who were doing that regular, maybe trying that three, four times a day and then wondering why the, their stress levels were completely above norm, right. like getting road okay. rage and finding it really difficult because yeah. obviously that's a more kind of, as we say, kind of more stress response kind of breathing. Yes, it, 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 and it is, and like over-breathing like that is a stress. And if you're generally like an over-breather in, as, a, as a general pattern for you, then you probably need to think about changing that the thing with uh, one of the big things with and i love the cold and i've done some wim hof um, stuff um and you know i'd actually really like to use the cold to really like produce calm and stillness and like to to deal with the stress of the cold we we have to respond by slowing things down and like when you get in that really nice, like still place and doing it actually in nature, like somewhere safe and with always be with someone and all that. But like I've had experiences where in the lake and it is just beautiful and it's freezing. Like it's been the ice on the thing and it's freezing, but you, you've rather than the, the stress response of initially is get the, get out, get out, get out. And the body yeah. then when you choose not to and you choose to calm down and you use the breath to calm you and actually go with really light, slow, relaxed breathing, four in, six out as a count is a great breath rate, very good for heart rate variability like you mentioned. Um, it's very calming and you get this stillness and when you see like some birds or some ducks like, or some swans, we had a little family of swans swimming past you that it was like, it's just, uh, yes, it's very... It's very centering. It's like a, it's almost like a meditative mindfulness type of thing for a guy like me would find it very difficult to just sit and do a, a mindfulness or meditation practice. Yeah. Whereas getting in the cold sort of forces you into that. You, you can't think about anything else. Um, with the breathing, with the Wim Hof style, um, I say the Tumo style breathing compared to the oxygen advantage, people we need to understand that they're they're two very different things yeah. like both are involving breathing but you have to think that the Wim Hof's breathing sits there as part of a um a protocol that he has um which is not just breathing on its own whereas with the oxygen advantage it's looking at changing the how you breathe day to day because how you breathe day to day will change how you breathe at night it would also change how you breathe when you're training you aren't going to breathe well for an hour that you train or exercise if you breathe terribly in the rest of your day. It's going to also affect like your recovery. It's going to affect your your, your autonomic nervous system, your, your fight or flight stress responses. It's going to change all of that. Um, and the Oxygen Advantage focuses on primarily sort of like two things around um, changing the mechanics of how we breathe to improve that so that it's got it's through the nose it's using the diaphragm and we're using the and we're getting the ribs to articulate effectively so the biomechanics and then the biochemistry is looking at like more effective use of um that uh, that exchange of gases between oxygen being able to be released because of being able to tolerate better levels of co2 and that's through lighter breathe breathe light to breathe right is one of the the uh, phrases that patrick mckeon uses a lot and it's low it's it's like lowering our breathing um, and then they've also got the breath holding is also looking as a, as, as actually a small stressor rather than a relaxation, but a small stressor to improve our CO2 tolerance. Cause basically as you hold your breath, oxygen goes down and CO2 goes up in the blood and we're getting, we're trying to challenge ourselves to get better and adapt to better levels of CO2. Whereas, um, Wim Hof's breathing is, as I said, it's, it's more to do with like changing. It's not to do with changing how you breathe and looking at your breathing mechanics, you know, he, he will say that, you know, 
for, for when you're doing that breathing, he doesn't mind whether it's from the nose or from the mouth. It's just important that you do it and no, you get through it. those breath cycles yeah. because it's looking to create a stress that then the body, like with the, with the cold, that the body then um, adapts to and is looking at tapping into like the, the nervous system and tapping into the hormonal system. And, you know, he's done some incredible things and in helping people with like autonomic ner- uh, diseases and things where, um, where, you know, it, it's not, actually like the how you breathe it's just using the breath for this technique that's actually helping people with a lot of um you know all sorts of different um immune autoimmune um disorders and things um you know and his you know uh, the study that he did where they not only did it to himself but he taught other people to do it and then they inject him in the, the endotoxin and they were able yeah. to fight it off it just shows like the power of it but it's, it's very difficult. If you're trying to compare the two techniques, they're not comparing the two things. Yeah. It's like comparing apples and pears. Like, yeah, they're both fruit, but they're different. Yeah. Um, they're not trying to achieve the same thing. They're trying to achieve different things is probably yeah, the best think, way to say I think that the way, you're, the way you've explained it is obviously the, the oxygen advantage is more kind of day-to-day functional breathing, how people breathe right. And then if you can uh, start to get into that breathing correctly day-to-day, then maybe yeah. it's worth trying doing Wim Hof because now you know, like your day to day, you should be using nasal breathing. Yeah, but if yeah. you want to try stress response, yes, um, exactly. I find the Wim Hof point. for me, the Wim Hof breathing in the morning is really good. I'll do maybe a couple of rounds of a, a Wim Hof breathing before I go into the cold shower, and then for the rest of the day, just try to use the kind of nasal breathing. Yeah. Um, through day to day, and just try to be aware of kind of using my nose. Like, tell me a wee bit about the kind of high altitude training that you do through the oxygen advantage. Then, um, I've actually just ordered the 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 mask. So, I don't, ah, okay, cool. Uh, yeah. Just to, just to try it out, just to see how it goes. But that's us- a challenge. That's a challenge. The first time you, the mask is like it's got. Basically, you're gonna you're gonna keep your mouth closed and breathe through your nose, but it's got like a little sliding scale, which is like a um, like a valve to just like close off. And the, when you put it on the highest setting, don't start with it on that. Right. It's basically just like a pinprick mm-hmm. is the hole. So the interesting thing with that is it's it you to get the air in, you've got to actually work quite hard because we already mentioned the diaphragm is a muscle and it's an endurance style muscle. It needs to it needs and it needs to be worked to be able to to work effectively. You might find that you can nasal breathe and use your diaphragm for like five minutes on your own. But after that, you you switch to mouth breathing because you're like, I just can't get enough air out of my nose and did it. And actually one of the things that might be the problem is your diaphragm just hasn't been trained enough to be able to deal with that load. Um, and so by having a smaller air hole to be able to pull the air in through, to get the air in, your diaphragm is going to contract and go down and out and the ribs are going to move. You're actually training those muscles that help facilitate that because you're making them work to get the air in and then on the way out, they've actually got to work to get the air out because they've got to force it out this little hole that's in the mask. Um, so it's not so don't don't if someone's just new to stuff, like they don't need to do that straight away. They're just trying to breathe through your nose when you go out for a, a jog will be difficult enough. Um, but yes, it's one of the things that then you can actually train your um, your respiratory muscles to be able to be train the endurance and strength and functionality of them, as well as the fact that by the you're getting less air in. You're you're challenging that CO two tolerance to be able to carry on breathing lighter whilst you're um, whilst you're increasing that metabolic demand of of the run. Um, but the altitude um, training basically when you when you hold your breath and particularly we do it with the oxygen advantage always after a, um, an exhale and and just to say like I did last year did the advanced instructor training with Patrick um, McKay and the author and, and the I guess the owner of the oxygen advantage and it was when I'd done the tr- advanced instructor training with him that hearing from him exactly what you need to do and all the science and research has gone into behind it. It was like, then the penny dropped and I was able to like apply it to myself more rather than I'd spent about a year trying to just implement it myself, having read the book and being inspired by it, but made, made some progress, but not, not, uh, not significant amounts. But, um, the out, so the breath holding was something that I enjoyed the most initially because it was a challenge that you could measure. So you would count your steps and I like to time uh, my breath hold as well because you can walk faster and slower and you might even turn them into a jog, but time is time. It doesn't change. So you got something to, to compare and you've got this number that you can then try and beat and you can see how you're progressing and how you're improving. 
Um, so I found that quite um, motivating, if you like, as well. It's good, easy to track. And the breath holding also brings into um, willpower. So you're, when you're trying to build up to a medium to strong, and when you particularly into those strong breath holds, you're holding your breath, your diaphragm is contracting because your brain is noticing these high levels of CO2 and it sends a message to the diaphragm to contract. And you're there holding your breath and your mouth closed going, nope, I'm, gonna, I'm working on my CO2 tolerance and I'm, I'm going to resist this desire to breathe. And you have to get used to that and there's willpower that is included that's used in that um so and you know when i first started i couldn't do 20 steps holding my breath after an exhale um i would have a a just a a panic a feeling of like suffocation and it was yeah. like yeah it was, it was it was it was stressful literally um you know and and getting up to like 60 steps is a, is a good marker it relates to about a 25 second bolt score um because we haven't really mentioned bolt score yet that's like i was a, also just going to t- talk about that there because obviously with a high altitude training yeah it's always good to as you say it's like knowing that you're making progress and obviously i'm assuming the more you do high altitude training the higher the bolt score um you'll get over time Yes. So your, your bolt score stands for body oxygen level test. I've got a video on my YouTube channel that explains how to, how to do that and take it effectively, but I could very sort of briefly, it's a, it's a, it's a breath hold after a normal exhale through the nose and, but it's taking willpower out of it. It is just waiting. You know, I mentioned that the, your desire to breathe and when your brain tells you to your diaphragm to contract, to take your next breath is down to monitoring levels of the of co2 so receptors in the brain that are noticing the levels of co2 so to get an idea of the tolerance of co2 and when you get triggered to breathe is this relaxed breath hold the bolt score so you um you do a normal breath in for the nose someone can do it now after listening if they want to a normal breath in for the nose a normal breath out for the nose you pinch the nose and you just hold your breath and it's you you relax and you just wait for the first desire to breathe and that might be a diaphragm has a little spasm, your your neck muscles or your cheek. Well, you, you might you just might feel something move, or you you just know oh, I, I want to take a breath now. And you let go of the nose and you breathe in through the nose because we still want that nitric oxide going in. But um, your breathing should be completely normal. You shouldn't let go of your nose and be like <gasps> because you've been trying to hold your breath. You're not trying to hold your breath. You're just waiting to see when is your first desire to breathe. Now, for me, I couldn't even do ten seconds when I started on that. A baseline of where we want to get to for good functional breathing patterns um, and good CO2 tolerance is 25 seconds. And I remember thinking, crikey, I'm flipping never going to get there. I'm I'm, I'm into the sort of mid-30s now and I never thought that would be possible. And if you imagine what that means is that I can, when you're at 25 seconds, it means that you can do a normal exhale. At the end of a normal exhale, you can pinch your nose and hold your breath and not feel the need and desire to breathe until 25 seconds has gone. So you can be relaxed in that, meaning that in your normal breathing patterns and habits, at the end of every exhale, it will be quite normal for you to have a, have, a, have, a, have a pause, not because you're trying to pause, but just naturally, it's just there. Rather than, con- rather than finishing a breath and then needing to take another one straight away, there's this natural pause. And that natural pause is very important in terms of, yes, it shows that your CO2 tolerance is at an acceptable level. So it's, you're going to have better efficiency and transfer of oxygen into the, uh, from the blood into the cells when you're, when you're exercising, which is obviously great for those that are training and trying to improve their cardiovascular performance and health. But equally, um, the diaphragm is going to get a rest. The diaphragm contracts on an inhale, it goes, it relaxes, it can be relaxed and returns back to its start position on an exhale. And if you have a pause at the end of your exhale, just naturally, and we, you know, we might be breathing 20,000 times a day, that's a lot of pauses that you potentially might have. Yeah. And that is important because keeping residual tension in the diaphragm is going to link to tension further up the chain. There's, you know, all sorts of muscles that attach into the spine, the same place that the diaphragm does on your lumbar spine. One of which is psoas major, one of the major hip flexor muscles. Those two muscles, the diaphragm and psoas, they intersect together the same place on, on, uh, on the lumbar spine. And we can't actually distinguish in a cadaver. We can't distinguish between those two muscles at that point. So if your diaphragm is never fully relaxed and always got a bit of tension in it, your hip flexor is going to have a bit of tension in it. Why have we got tight hips all the time? Because we're sitting too much. Well, yeah, partly, but equally when you're sitting too much, that also affects how you breathe. 
and just how you're breathing in general is going to affect the tightness and residual tension you have in your diaphragm, which is going to affect um, your hips. So there's a lot going, it's going to expect, uh, in, uh, have an impact on your spinal um, stability, your spinal posture, which affects your rib cage posture. Think about how we're breathing. If we're using the upper chest and lifting that all the time compared to letting the lower ribs articulate, then you're going to change your rib cage position. Your scapula sit on your rib cage and that's going to affect your shoulder blade position and that's going to affect your shoulder. But so it literally links all the way up and down through the chain. Um, but I guess back to the bolt score, having been, so just why it's important that that diaphragm is working effectively, has the room to move because you're using the ribs correctly and also has the chance to relax every once in a while rather than constantly um, working. Um, so the bolt score is a relaxed breath hold should be once you let go of the nose should be normal it's after an exhale it should be completely normal breathing afterwards um and it tells you what is your uh what is particularly what is your co2 tolerance like and if you're 25 seconds is a good measure and that equates to about 60 steps on a on a breath hold test um and i say i couldn't even do 20 steps when i started but you know the aim is to get 80 to 100 and i remember thinking crikey well that's never going to happen you know i've done a 120 or something now like it it's amazing how much change can make um but essentially with those why is it linked why is it called like simulating altitude training when we hold the breath particularly after an exhale so we do a normal inhale through the nose a normal exhale always with the breath holds the ultimate advantage so normal inhale through the nose normal exhale so it's not like a big preparation breath and you're not trying to get all the air out just normal normal in and out we pinch the nose and then for the walking breathlessness test, we would be walking and counting our steps. As you're holding your breath, uh, oxygen in the blood is going down. So your SpO2, that's your blood oxygen saturation, goes down because it's going out of the blood into the cells. Your CO2 in the blood is going up because it's coming out of the cells and into the into the blood. And you're not breathing. So you're, you're not letting any more oxygen come in. So it keeps going down. You're not letting any carbon dioxide leave. So it keeps going up. And we get this hypoxic, which is a fancy name for, for low oxygen, and hypercapnic, fancy name for high CO2. And what that... Um, what that does is then CO2 goes up, the brain notices and tells you to breathe. You then choose your diaphragm, it will contract and spasm and actually gets a bit of a workout. So again, it's good for like getting your, um, stimulating your diaphragm, getting you working it and, and using it. So that's like a bit of, a, of an added bonus of it. Um, but equally, you then decide, I'm going to use my willpower not to breathe and I'm going to tolerate this level of, yes, discomfort, but higher levels of CO2. As you do that over time, you might be doing five breath holes a day, something very simple, just as much as that. Over time, your brain, those receptors in the brain start to get used to, okay, this is now at like a higher level of CO2, is an acceptable level in the blood. So you start to get used to that better oxygen um, exchange. And um, uh, your those yeah those, those those high levels of CO2 is what that's sort of all about and when your blood oxygen saturation drops to a between 80 to high 80s 80 sort of seven percent that's the equivalent to about being at about four to five thousand meters of altitude um so that low oxygen high CO2 that we can create with a breath hole just in my own kitchen is it gives me the chance to to stimulate to, to simulate uh, the same benefits we get from training at altitude. I think that's why I love the oxygen advantage so much is because it's it's laid out for the general popula- population yeah. for people to improve their functional training, uh, breathing, but also for athletes who do want to do kind of more kind of high altitude training. Yeah. If people were to do more research on breathing and breath work, where would you send them, and what other thing, other can maybe books or researches that you've done maybe uh, would help people to look into the breath work. Um, so books wise, get the, definitely buy the oxygen advantage. Um, Patrick McKean, the author of that is obviously there's the, the website oxygen advantage, um, as well. I've got a, I started a YouTube channel where I'm sharing, um, you know, tutorials of, and explaining how to put these things into practice and show my own experiences having been starting from a very bad place and, um, trying to improve that. Um, there is a breath is a book by, um, James Nester. Uh, James Nestor, that's yeah. fantastic read yeah. as well. It's actually like very, it's like it's more, like, it's like a story. That's what uh, I found. That's that, yeah. yeah, very lovely to read. Yeah, I read that one very fast as well. Um, yeah, so I definitely check out those. Yeah, check out those two books. Um, 
I would, yeah, I'd have a look at um, the Oxford Advantage website. You know, there's there's online class and things. I do some um, online groups via Zoom um, as well. And so if you, you head over to either my Instagram or my YouTube channel, then you'll see um, some of the videos and details about that as well. Am I right in saying that Patrick's got a, a new book coming out or has it just come out? Yes, it came. It is out. I think it came out literally a couple of days ago. Yeah, yeah. Stop. Fatality Fitness Podcast, covering everything from fitness, health, and nutrition posted about the red light can you tell us a wee yes. bit about, uh, yeah just a wee bit about that it's just something that obviously i've just recently seen uh actually one of the trainers in the gyms actually just went and purchased one it's just to find out a wee bit about that how what's your experience with it and um yeah tell us a wee bit about that yeah um yeah uh we've got uh red light red, red light therapy products from red light rising it's been it was something put on the radar. I just kept listening to podcasts where doctors from all different walks of life talking about the benefits of red light therapy. And it was like, I need to have, I need to have a look um, into this. Um, so, I mean, one of the things for me personally, it's like, it's great for recovery after training, but one of the biggest things is like using it to help, particularly like in the UK where we get limited um, light exposure during the winter months. Um, having the the red light simulates um the like the sunrise um it's also because it's it's just it's 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 red light and um infrared and those uh, those wavelengths don't mess with your um like i'm now in front of it's getting towards five o'clock and i'm uh, i should have my blue light blocking glasses on because i've got the 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 blue light and the, the 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 white light from the screen messes around with our with our hormones that will affect our circadian rhythm so it's something that um use first thing in the morning um that helps simulate that um sunrise and you get the the wavelengths that they use for the red and the in the infrared um penetrate deep into cells and help to energize the mitochondria in the cells um, so it can literally, because it's working at that cellular level, it, 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 it impacts literally everything. So it's like, it's good for your skin, but it's good for your hair and it's good for your, uh, it's good for your, like your, your muscle recovery. It, it, it's literally, um, it sounds like a bit of a wonder thing, but it, you, if you look at the research and it was actually NASA in the 1960s started the research on it. Um, but it's recommended worldwide by, you know, doctors um, all over the place and all different walks of fitness, health, wellness. Um, they all say the same things um, because it's working at like a cellular level. It, it, it has the, it has the potential to impact um, anything that you're doing. Sounds, um, sounds interesting stuff. Do you think you, yeah, you no. do you think you're at that now? Like you'll try, because obviously you had that kind of health scare. Do you think now you'll try anything that kind of people promote for kind of health? You'll try it. <laughs> Um, I guess it probably makes me sound like I was a try. It's, uh, I will, I, I have a, a huge desire and passion to just try to be the healthiest I can be and just like honor my, my body to, you know, we got given this amazing thing that you get to, to live in, but you only get one of them. And, um, I guess through my life, I've done things in playing rugby, which, um, I learned a lot and, and gave was a, you know, I loved it and gave me a great career. And, but there was, there were certain elements of that where we was not looking after the body at all. It was actually doing the very opposite. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as I get older now is, yeah, just wanting to push into that more. My wife, uh, Mrs. Jacko is, uh, she's a functional health coach trained with the Crestor Institute where it's a very holistic look, at, um, all areas of health and wellness and how that can Im- improve. So, you know, not just looking at our diet, looking at flipping everything from our hormonal cycles to our, our sleep patterns. Yes to food, but yes, looking at our stress responses. I mean, there's some stuff where they're saying it can actually be more important. Your state of mind and your stress levels when you're eating is actually potentially more important than the food that's even on your plate. Yeah. Um, obviously match up those two things, have very healthy things on your plate and in a good state of mind to, to consume them. Um, but yeah, I, I'll, I'm very interested in looking at anything that's going to help promote um, health. And yes, red light therapy, I guess, is like at the techie end of things, whereas everything else I would probably be doing falls much more into just like, how do we, what can I do to to improve that? That's just for like getting out in direct sunlight is free, going out for a walk and getting fresh air, being in nature, yeah. um, getting your bare feet on the grass, like for, for grounding, like yeah. is fantastic and completely free. Changing the way I breathe is helpful for all those things we already talked about, but also massively important for our, our mental health and um, our mindfulness and being a little bit more focused and being more present. So 
I'd say like 99% of the stuff I'm looking at is, is all just completely non-techy health-based, if you know what I mean. Um, whereas, yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things in there that something like red light tape, have got like the blue light blocking glasses I mentioned. It's like technology or things that we've generated now to help us deal with the additional stresses and toxins that we have built into our everyday lives of the computer screen, Wi-Fi and all these things. So there's a lot of stuff going on that you might not have even thought about or considered and yeah sometimes we need some there, there's stuff out there and red light therapy is one of those that can help us um yeah protect ourselves protect or just maintain like health within a within a world that you know if you look at i think of it as this is kind of massive tangent but like you know if you, if you look at like how we live now in terms of civilization it's like the tiniest fraction of like the norm for like how the world and people have been on the planet yeah but we think how we live now is normal. It's normal for now, but it's not normal in terms of the lifespan of the world. So like that is just a concept of, uh, yeah, I'm just open to that and going like, yeah, just because everyone sits and watch TV at night and that's normal. doesn't mean that that's a normal thing to do. That's actually good for us or has been normal in the past. Like yeah. our diet now, how we eat now is what might be normal now is not normal for us. Um, and trying to get back to more natural ways of doing things um, is is definitely a, a very much a focus of mine. Yeah, I think you're right because obviously it's like it's even the the book I'm reading just now. It's just basically telling you like we've we've got so much more in life, but the rate of kind of depression and everything else is a lot higher as well. Oh, so sometimes it is just a matter of just pulling it back and going back out, going walks in nature, learn how to breathe right, how to sleep right, the kind of yeah. box standard stuff. Where can people follow you on social media? Um, so my Instagram is Jacko Human Flag because I like doing human flags or it's very much started, started my Instagram. That was definitely what it was all about. It's, it's a little bit more about being human than just doing a human flag these days. As soon, as, you, as, soon as you got your first one done, I bet you went on and changed the name. Uh, yeah, 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 100%. Completed that. Yeah. Uh, do, uh, do the odd human flag every now and again as well. Uh, yeah, so that's uh, on, yeah, on Instagram. And, uh, and then uh, my YouTube is just David Jackson. Yeah, and then the Calyx test. And calisthenics well. is uh, schoolofcalisthenics.com. Brilliant. Thanks for coming. You can up. get, we've got a seven day free trial on any of our memberships. So people can try it out for seven days for free for a week, see if you like it. Uh, if you do, great. But if you don't, then it's not for you. Like that's the whole point of the free trial. We want to, we want to service people that are, uh, that, that, that want to get on board with it. And so we want to give you the chance to experience it. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, thanks for coming on and, and talking. And obviously, like, I think a lot of people can take a lot away from this. And, um, if you just want to try some of the, the drills, like the nose unblotting, the bulk score, high altitude stuff, if you go on to uh, David's uh, Instagram, he's got a lot of videos on there that are quite practical and you can use uh, to try it out. So thanks Yeah, for- and if you've got any questions, you can just drop me a direct message and uh, love to chat. Brilliant. Thanks for coming on. Thanks. No, thanks for having me, Matthew. Fatality Fitness Podcast, covering everything from fitness, health, and nutrition with your host, Matthew Smiley, covering top topics and answering all your fitness Q&As with featured guests.